Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on Shelf Life this week is Sarah Bonner, the author of Her Perfect Twin. Sarah, thank you very much for joining me. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I was very excited to have you on on this because uh, you are a customer of Burt's Books. You were a customer of Burt's Books and then you've got a book deal and now, now the book is, it's out, it's out today. Yes, very exciting. So yeah, I've been a long time customer of yourself and your lovely ribbons, which then I've been reusing on Christmas and various times as well. So yeah, it's absolutely fantastic to uh, to be here and to finally get to chat with you. Wonderful. Uh, so well, let's start. Why don't you tell everyone a bit about yourself and about your new novel? Okay, so a bit about myself. Uh, my name's Sarah Bonner. Um, I am a debut author so this is my very first book uh, that's coming out uh previously i've been an accountant so we won't talk about that in too much detail um but yeah absolutely delighted to have um a novel uh coming out today um it's called her perfect twin it is a psychological thriller that is a story of megan who is in her 30s uh, she's a management consultant. She's trapped in a pretty toxic marriage to a not very nice man called Chris. Um, she's also an identical twin, but she's estranged from her sister and they haven't spoken in a number of years. And the novel opens when she discovers compromising pictures of her twin sister on her husband's phone. She goes to confront her twin and in the ensuing argument, accidentally kills her. And then she tries to basically get away with it by uh, convincing the world that Leah's still alive. So she essentially lives both of their lives for a period of time. Um, and it's not going too badly until the country goes into lockdown because it's March of 2020. And she is locked down, trapped at home with her husband who it transpires knows a little bit more than she thought he knew. Okay, so first of all, I've got to ask, what made you set it during lockdown? We, was the, did the book already exist and then lockdown happened or did lockdown inspire you? So lockdown inspired it. Um, I didn't start writing it until about August, I think, of 2020. Um, so I'd been writing another book uh, prior to that that had got to a point where um, it had taught me a lot about how to write, but it, was, it wasn't it was working properly and I didn't quite know what to do with it. And so I set it to one side and started writing some short stories over the summer. And one of those was about a woman who is trying to decide if she should go on a second date with this guy who thinks that she is her identical twin. And that formed the, the basis of uh, this idea and then a friend of mine was talking about lockdown and saying, wouldn't it be a terrible time to be trying to live a double life? And I thought, well, yes, it would. Um, and so kind of 
mashed that together with the short story that I'd been writing. Um, and then I'd had an idea as well about a story of a woman trying to convince her mother-in-law that her husband wasn't actually lying dead in her freezer and was merely in the shower or in the garden or whatever every time she rang. And so I yeah, basically just put these three components together and thought, oh, hang on a second, that, that could be a book. Uh, and we were in restrictions at the time. I'd taken redundancy, so I had quite a lot of time to, to play with. And so I sat down and, and wrote the book and it was really fast to write it. It was 14 weeks, I think, from start to sending it out to agents. So it was really, really quick. Um, and yet just all the pieces came together and lockdown just felt... Um, it felt like it worked with the story. I wanted to write something that was set at that time that was so bizarre and claustrophobic and uncertain and we didn't know what was going on. And I wanted to write something that would reflect that, but without it being about COVID itself. So although it's set during the pandemic, no one in the novel um, contracts COVID and it's very much in the background. It's not kind of right in your face. So if anyone is concerned about it being a quote-unquote pandemic book it's not really we will probably talk more about uh, some of those themes as we go along but we're here to talk about your shelf life so the seven books that have changed or influenced your life in some way how did you go about picking the books so when we first talked about doing this podcast, I was a bit nervous. I thought, how am I going to think of seven books? And I went over to my bookshelf and immediately picked out about 20 that I wanted to talk about. I thought, okay, actually, the difficult thing here is going to be whittling it down rather than thinking of any to talk about in the first place. Um, and so what I did is I've picked seven books that represent kind of significant uh, time periods or they are they're ones that I've reread many times they're ones that I would you know go out of my way to hunt down a special edition of um, they're just books that have been important to me um, they might not necessarily be books that other people <laughs> will, um, will will have read or will have loved but hopefully they will be um, I think there are some some popular popular books in that stack so well then let's start with your first one what is it and who is it by so my first one is a children's book uh, which is called Drina Dances in Exile by Jean Esterel um, and this is a kind of classic girls or boys uh, but predominantly girls um, ballet story from the 1950s and there was a series of them um, I think there were five or six that followed Drina from the age of 10 up to um, you know, adulthood. So while she was training and then there was afterwards another series of about six, I think, where she um, dances professionally. I have to say I've never read the ones from when she was older, but I have read many, many times the ones of her um, at a younger age. And I think I read these books when I was about eight or nine. Um, and I was a dancer uh, in my youth um, and went on to um, professional level uh, performing arts training for a while uh, in my late teens as well. And the reason I've chosen 
specifically the Drina Dances in Exile, which is book number three in the series, is because uh, in this novel, Drina, who is by this point 13, uh, goes to a ballet boarding school in the country set in the middle of nowhere that she absolutely hates, which is hence why it's uh, in exile in the title. Um, but the funny thing with this is I ended up going to the school that this was based on when I was 14. So having read the book and loved it as an eight-year-old, at 14, I walked into this boarding school that I was about to start and realised that it was the book, it was the um, the manor house that Drina Dances in Exile is set in. And that just blew my my kind of teenage mind a little bit. Um, and yeah, when we started talking about doing this podcast, I've managed to track down a copy because they've been out of print for, for years. Um, so I've managed to track down a copy, which I shall be wow. reading this weekend. And I'm quite <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> so, uh, so you were a dancer. Um, at some point that turned into accountant and then, and then into a writer. Which one of those as a child was the dream that you wanted to be when you grew up? So I think dancing was was always something that I enjoyed <clears throat> um, and that I loved, but in all honesty, I wasn't good enough to do it professionally. Um, so there was, I think, a kind of realisation when I was in my teens that actually it probably wasn't going to be something that I could do, but it's always been something that I love. Um, and I have basically read every single ballet book ever written, um, and, you know, I still enjoy watching today. I don't dance anymore at all. Um, but so that was always, I suppose, my first love. And that led me into doing a lot more uh, theatre studies and drama. And for a long time, I wanted to be a playwright, um, which I think is where the writing comes in. And then somehow I ended up becoming an accountant and I don't really I can't tell you you know at what point that um, that happened uh, but I did that for about 15 years and I, I quite enjoyed it I'm, I quite like working with numbers uh, but it always felt like there was something missing and I've always been a huge huge reader and I've realized a couple of years ago that actually that might writing might give me that outlet for my creativity that obviously is rather discouraged in accounting to to be particularly creative um and so yeah started writing didn't really think about it from a career perspective I think everyone tells you that it is so impossibly difficult to get novels published that it felt like it was probably a bit of a pipe dream but you never know until you try. And so having written Her Perfect Twin, I, I sent it out into the world and have been incredibly lucky to, to find an agent and then to find a publishing deal. So, yeah, And, and all... really quickly as well. I mean, we say that uh, it feels like it's taken a long time, but 18 months from having the idea to, to it being published is phenomenally quick. It is very quick and I will caveat this uh, to, to anyone listening um, on the basis that having been made redundant I didn't have a day job well particularly while writing and I don't have kids either so you know absolutely hats off to, to anyone who's trying to write 
and work and look after small children as well and particularly in a pandemic with homeschooling and everything um the reality for me was particularly being in lockdown that there was very little uh else taking up my time so I was able to write really really intensively um and then was incredibly lucky to find representation via a pitching contest that my agency was running uh so I've just been very very lucky and things have fallen into place in a way that I could never have imagined uh would actually happen so what's the name of your agency and the contest do they still do it is that something that people can look up so uh, it's DHH Literary and they periodically run a pitching contest where they will offer you a one-to-one with an agent to uh, to pitch to them and also to work on your uh, material. Um, so even if they don't offer you representation, they still will help you to uh, refine your kind of uh, your pitch letters and your synopsis and things. And I think they run it every year. I think, and they quite often as well will do it. They'll go on the road and do it. So I know they've done it previously in um, large cities and particularly looking outside of London to go and do that. So I know they did one, I think it was in Leeds a few years ago, uh, but because of the pandemic, they took it to Zoom last year. Um, hence why I joined, but I was very, very lucky as well to find that because it closed the day after I realized that it even existed. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so it was, yeah, just a, a series of very, very fortunate of timing uh, elements on there. Back to Drina Dances in Exile, uh, it's a children's book. Would you ever write a children's book? So I've been working on a young adult novel uh, for the last year. Uh, so that would uh, obviously appeal to a different audience to her perfect twin, uh, but hopefully will appeal to uh, to teenagers and other people who read YA. I mean, I read a lot of YA myself, um, hence why I wanted to write something that was a young adult thriller. Um, and I loved the genre. Um, of when I've realised actually I don't have any young adult books in my stack which is probably a bit of an omission really um, I really love that genre and I particularly love it for the level of escapism you get as an adult reading YA uh, because it's it's a different series of issues and problems that um, your characters are facing um, that I really, really enjoy. So there's no talk about mortgages and things like that, um, <laughs> which is which is always quite nice. Um, so yes to writing YA. I don't think I'd write younger. I think not having children myself, and a lot of my friends don't have children either. I think I would struggle with getting it into the right voice um, for that age group. But I mean, never say never. You never know, I suppose. What's your second choice? So my second choice is Jurassic Park, which I have picked because it's the first book, the first adult book or book specifically written for adults that I remember reading. And I remember being about, I suppose I would have been about 10 or 11 um, and it had just come out. They'd started to talk about um, it becoming a, a film as well. And everyone was getting really excited that it was all about dinosaurs. And 
I begged my mum to let me read it and she was like oh, it's an adult book and she's like okay yeah fine read it um and it just blew my mind this uh, this kind of jump I suppose from reading things like Drina to then suddenly reading something like Jurassic Park and I just it blew my mind it's incredibly um it's, it's a brilliant book anyway and I really do need to reread it actually talking about it I'm like oh, we need to get another copy of it um and and read it again because I haven't read it for quite some time but it was so iconic for me that that was my first adult book um and it then led me into that kind of thriller section of the library um you know growing up we read constantly and my mum used to take us to the library pretty much every week but we lived in a relatively small village so the library was quite small and I think by the age of about 10 I'd read everything in the children's section and young adult wasn't really so big a genre at that time so we're talking <clears throat> about 30 years ago um so <laughs> so there was this there it felt like there was this huge leap to to go from the children's section into the adult section but that reading Jurassic Park was kind of the gateway then to that whole uh genre so then reading a lot of Stephen King and a lot of Dean Koontz and probably a whole load of stuff that was entirely inappropriate for an 11 year old to be reading <laughs> um but um just yeah just took me uh to to places that yeah, completely blew my mind from going from uh, kind of kids' boarding school stories to Jurassic Park, which was just, yeah, absolutely amazing. It's a funny one, isn't it? I often get asked as a bookseller, would it be okay for my 12-year-old, 13-year-old to read this book? And I sit and go, well, when I was that age, I was reading, I was reading adult books. I was reading Dean Koontz, as you say, Stephen King. And, and I think it didn't do me any harm but as adults we're all a bit alarmed at the idea of children that young reading those books and uh, I think it's something that we kind of forget that we were we were fine and we we got on with them fine at that age. Yeah I think as well it's I think it is a slightly different time that makes me sound absolutely ancient but um, I think at the time it was a little bit more lax maybe um around around things and there isn't a there wasn't quite that same level of um parental advisory on on things yeah. even you know even on some of the stuff we just watch on on tv and and films and things and also I was very very lucky that my mum is a huge reader and she reads I'd say she probably reads 200 250 books a year that kind of level um and always has done and so when I was making that transition into to reading more adult books, she was brilliant at saying, well, read this, you'll enjoy it. Read that, you'll enjoy it. Um, so I suppose it was a bit like having a kind of librarian at home <laughs> uh, to, to recommend things. And she was always really quite comfortable with me reading things that maybe were quite adult, but were not going to be overly you know, traumatic and then she'd go like well actually yeah you probably shouldn't read this one it's got far too much sex in it um you know have have this Stephen King book instead <laughs> <laughs> in that really bizarre like 
well, sex is, is bad to read about when you're that age, but killing people, great. It's fine. Knock yourself yeah. out. <laughs> uh, Jurassic Park, everyone, I think, probably knows what that one is about. As you say, it's quite iconic. Did you see the film and how did it compare to the book? So I did see the film, um, I think pretty much around about the same time. And I think that was the the first realization I had that the book is 99% of the times is always going to be better. There are a few exceptions, but generally the book is better. Well, certainly is in my opinion anyway. Um, and so, because I remember reading the book and it's quite intricate and it goes into some of the science in certainly what seemed to me to be quite a lot of detail at the time. Um, but then the the film version was a lot more about look at the big dinosaurs, which obviously you didn't have on the page in quite the same way because you didn't have that visual um, given to you in the same way. And I think I think really this was the the moment that I realised that my <clears throat> my preference in terms of stories was always going to be the book, um, and um, which is probably a great thing to learn as as a ten year old because then. I'm much more inclined to pick up a book than I am to, to watch something uh, even now. So yeah, I, I remember feeling a little bit disappointed that it had become, look at the big dinosaurs and not actually this idea of, um, could we do this? Could we recreate dinosaurs and should we? Um, that I really liked that aspect that's explored a little bit more fully uh, in the book. And I really sound like I was a very strange child when I say things like that. It's fine. We were all strange children uh, in our own way. Um, now that I've got you to, to say and to admit that books are always better than the film, uh, is there any film plans for Her Perfect Twin? There is nothing at the moment, but I, I live in perpetual hope because, you know, I can say that I prefer books as a medium but um if someone did offer to make a film or tv series version of her perfect twin i wouldn't say no let's put it that way i'm thinking it would make a very good netflix drama six part series perfect i hope they're listening <laughs> i hope so too so yeah if anyone is listening what's your uh, next choice so my next choice uh is slightly different again uh is the bloody chamber uh, and other stories by Angela Carter, um, which I remember studying at A level, uh, A level English literature. Um, we had a uh, module that was about Gothic literature, and having up until that point, I'd not read a lot of Gothic literature. This module was just absolutely incredible, and I remember sitting in class being absolutely flabbergasted that they were letting us read something like the bloody chamber in school um which i think was a little bit of an example as well my school that i went to do my a levels at was um <clears throat> quite academic but also quite progressive and they really liked us to to challenge ourselves with what we were reading um and i just adored some of these stories that are in here so they are, um, if anyone doesn't know uh, Angela Carter's work, The Blood Chamber is 
a collection of short stories. They are, if we were to describe them to today, we would call them retellings of some of the classic fairy tales. So there's a, a Bluebeard and a Little Red Riding Hood and Beauty and the Beast, but they are very dark, um, quite uh, explicit in, in some ways, but they are beautifully written as well. So um, they are something that I've read many, many times since, and I've, I'm not a huge rereader normally, uh, but this is something that I've kind of con gone back to and read many times over the years. And they are just, yeah, they're just brilliant. Uh, is there one in the collection that is your, your favourite? Um, I think The Tiger's Bride is my favourite um, out of these, which is um, essentially Beauty and the Beast, uh, for want of a better description, um, but is very, very different in terms of how it unfolds. Um, Angela Carter brings up some some really um, interesting kind of feminist points. So they're, they're almost in a way kind of essays on elements of feminism and particularly that kind of second wave feminism from, from that period. Um, so there's a lot of uh, women who are being uh, used in payment. So I think in The Tiger's Bride, she's sent to this man, beast person, um, because her father owed him money. So she's basically kind of given um, in settlement of his debts. Um, and so, yeah, it is quite dark, but there's a huge kind of coming of age and she kind of comes into herself uh, in that environment. Um, but yeah, I just, they just were at the time that, at the time of reading them, um, they had a huge impact on, on me. Um, and I think they they've held themselves very well over time as well. I know sometimes when we read things when we're younger and then we go back to them as adults, they don't necessarily stand up as well as we remember them. These are probably better now um, when I read them now um, in my very nearly 40s. Um, <laughs> they are. I think they had even more of an impact than they did when I was a teenager. And that I think is uh, is is a kind of testament to just how good they are. They've held up that well. You said that Her Perfect Twin started out as a short story. How many short stories have you got hidden in a drawer that one day might become novels? Um, one. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I've never um, really written that many short stories. Um, and I don't really know why, because I actually really enjoy um, that kind of short form um, to read. Um, I think, I, yeah, I don't really know why I've not written as much. And it's probably something that I will write more of. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd written a couple of short stories over that summer of, of 2020 and then had the idea to turn Her Perfect Twin into a novel length. And so I've concentrated much more on that. Um, but yeah, I think I will probably go back and, and write some more because it is a really interesting way of exploring um, characters who you might not want to write a whole novel about. Obviously, it takes a lot of time to write a novel. Um, but yes, maybe I, maybe I will. What's your next choice? 
So my next choice is technically a series, uh, but I will uh, talk specifically about the first one in the series, and that is Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Um, so these are, it sounds really weird to describe it. Um, and I think when my mum first described this to me, so my mum introduced me to these when I was in my teens, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, well, ridiculous uh and then read it and loved it and have read all of them I think there's nine now and she's just published a new one that I haven't read yet because I want to go back and read the whole series but that's going to take a lot of time because they are they're big books as well um so the very first one is a story of a woman called Claire who's on her honeymoon uh in the Scottish Highlands in 1946 the wars just ended She's on her honeymoon and she steps into a stone circle and is transported back through time to 1743. And there she basically lives in 1743 um, with, she meets a guy, I think she's forced to marry a guy. I can't remember all of the details. I do need to go back and reread them. But anyway, she falls in love with, uh, this guy called Jamie, uh, they get married, and then she lives there for three years in the 1700s, um, which is a particularly tumultuous time in Scotland's history. So Scotland and England are basically at war at that point. Um, and it follows her story as she, you know, being a, I'm going to say contemporary, it's not quite contemporary, but being a contemporary woman in that environment um, and having to to suddenly try and fit in because obviously um, no one would believe that she'd come from 1946 um, and and how she integrates her life at that time and it's just um, what Diana Gabaldon is absolutely brilliant at is those details of everyday life that she throws into it so I think quite often when we read historical fiction we read um, novels that are about important people in history so we read books um you know about Anne Boleyn for example which are fascinating but I personally find it even more fascinating to read about everyday people and how their lives would have been um, and that's always been something that's fascinated me and and this uh the Outlander series did it in a way that is it's so wonderfully observed and it's so detailed um but the characters are just incredible as well. So you have this Jamie who is um, this kind of Scottish, big redhead Scottish man that she falls passionately in love with. And, um, you know, you talk about book boyfriends and he is my complete book crush. Um, I have to say, I haven't watched the series. There is a series. I can't watch it because my vision of who Jamie is I don't think you could ever match that on screen. So I've never made, um, allowed myself to watch it, but yeah, they're just, they're just brilliant. And they follow um, this woman's life and over the course of the series, um, which I think follows about 30 or 40 years of her life uh, in total. Um, and were written, so um, the first one was written in, in the early nineties. Um, Diana Gowden's still writing them and she's written some offshoots as well about one of the other characters in there. 
but it became this saga and I don't normally like saga but these are this have a very special place uh, in my heart just because they're just so brilliantly written and the premise is bonkers but it makes absolute sense when you read it so um yeah this this is quite the series it's one that whenever I, I mean I'll, I'll press you this with I've not read it I've not watched the series at all so I don't really know in fact this what you've just explained to me is about the most I've ever known about it <laughs> uh, but what I do I do know there's a man called Jamie in it because anytime I talk on Twitter about um, book boyfriends or what's your favorite series the people who have read Outlander are so passionate about it and about Jamie particularly uh, that it's just I see it and I'm just like there's there's a whole group of people that don't know anything about Outlander and then there's the fans and it there just doesn't seem to be any in between with it yeah I've never met anyone who's read it and been a bit like yeah no it's all right I think I think if you if you do read them you do end up falling in love with them um but I will warn anyone who's thinking now well maybe I should read that set aside some time because they are big books um so this um, i'm holding a copy at the moment this is the the first in the series and the shortest and that is 858 pages yeah that's quite a quite a yeah, long one they are quite big um so i have a whole shelf so the whole series takes up literally a whole shelf on my bookshelf um and i've had to rebuy them a couple of times because i've read them so many times wow which I think is the only series I've ever done that with um but yeah they are brilliant and I do need to read them all again so then I can read the new one that just literally came out I think about a month or so ago yeah it's just before Christmas um because again I don't know it in my head it was all quite a fantasy series but it sounds like apart from the initial time travel it's then fairly uh commonplace there's, there's not dragons or anything in this is there no no it's it's very it's very much a historical novel that's I don't know how accurate it really is I know that she does do a phenomenal amount of research which is I think why they take so long for her to write them um but they are very much kind of set real world um and there is so yeah, there's an element of the time travel, but it's fairly well explained as a mechanism actually. And it's not, um, it, it, it seems quite congruous and quite like, yes, it's fantasy, but it doesn't feel overly ridiculous. Um, and there are some times where the two sides of uh, the timeline do meet again. Um, I don't want to give away spoilers. No, of course. <laughs> um, particularly for the first one. But anyway, um, and but I think what is particularly fascinating is how she, so Claire, deals with what she knows, but in 1740, so she was a nurse in the war. So she has a much better understanding of things like antibiotics and things like that. Um, which they didn't have at that time and so she um, she has to then tread this really interesting fine line between wanting to help people because she has the knowledge to do that but 
not being seen as a witch, which she would have been seen at that time with some of the things she knows. And so, yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating that interplay of the contemporary with that historical setting that I, it just works so beautifully. Um, and yet it, it sounds fantastical when you talk about it, but it doesn't read as being fantasy on the page. Would you ever write a big long series, an interconnected group of novels, or is that something that you think, no, I'll leave that to other people? Um, I'd love to. I'd love to write something that was that intricate. Um, I am a big fan of plotting out with post-it notes and I can just have this vision that I could just have this whole room of post-it notes and it would be amazing. Um, I think I think it is a very special skill set though. And I'm not sure that I would have the patience. Um, maybe later on down the line um, in my writing career, it might be something I'd think about, but for now, I really am enjoying kind of being able to create whole new people that exist uh, in their own worlds um, rather than having to weave through um, all of this. But um, never say never again, but yeah. What's your next choice? So my next choice is an absolute classic and I'm fairly sure that a lot of other people who have been on Shelf Life and have talked about this one. Uh, next one is Stephen King's Misery. Um, this, I remember reading this again as a teenager and just loving it. So I think this is probably the book that made me want to be a thriller writer because, oh, that sounds really weird actually when you think about the storyline. Yes, this made me want to be a thriller writer, despite the fact that it's about a thriller writer <laughs> basically being held hostage by a lunatic. Um, yeah, I've realised that sounds very odd. But anyway, we'll go with it. Um, so to anyone who doesn't know what Misery is all about, um, it is about a writer who has written one of these long series where... Um, which have a central character called Misery, who he essentially kills off at the end of his series because he wants to go and write something else. And then he's in a car crash. And when he wakes up, he is basically being held hostage by um, this woman, Annie, who refuses to let him leave until he writes another book in the Misery series where Misery basically comes back to life. Um, and so he, she stands over him while he is sitting at his typewriter, because um, obviously it's set kind of pre-computer era. Um, so he has to basically sit uh, with some quite bad injuries that she doesn't necessarily help him with, uh, writing a different version of that book so that Misery never dies. Um, and it's an absolute masterclass in kind of suspense writing. It's very, very claustrophobic. It's, I just, it, I just remember reading this kind of open mouthed of a, um, of, yeah, just, just how terrifying it is but it's not one of King's kind of monster under the bed, but it is a proper 
it's a proper psychological thriller, really. For I think from an era when psychological thrillers weren't really a thing, if that makes sense. So I think to me, this is probably the first time that I'd read something like this. Um, and yeah, made me a uh, hardcore Stephen King fan and also just a fan of this kind of claustrophobic, relatively domestic thriller. So yeah, misery. <laughs> and how old were you when you read that one? Was this one when you were 11, 12, or was it a little bit Probably. late? <laughs> Probably about 11 or 12. Because um, I think my mum my reads a lot of Stephen King, um, but she's not a huge fan of his horror. And so I think she would have given this to me um, on a, actually, it's not, it's not particularly graphic either. So there is, I think there's one scene that is quite graphic, but most of it, isn't it's just absolutely chilling um and she is this woman is so manipulative and yeah I just love it <laughs> you mentioned as well we mentioned earlier Dean Koontz um and sort of where I where I've sort of seen in in sort of life people are generally a Dean Koontz fan or they're a Stephen King fan and there are obviously people who are fans of both but there's always a preference is, is Stephen King your preference of the two? I actually think probably Dean Koontz is just that his there wasn't a singular standout from from his um from his books um so I think Dean Koontz was the absolute master at writing. They're not necessarily about ordinary people, but they weren't the kind of huge high concept um, that something like Jurassic Park was. Um, and I think I've probably read everything, pretty much everything that Dean Koontz has ever written, or certainly that he wrote up to a point. There's, he then did a series that were the odd series that I didn't get on with and I think from that point I stopped reading so many of his but I have gone back to some of his more recent um more recent work um so yeah I probably would have said I was more of a Dean Koontz fan but there's something about misery that just specifically stands out for me it's, it's odd isn't it both actually King and Koontz I think do uh, vary in the type of books that they write some are out and out horror and then some are just these really tense thrillers and then yet some are quite sort of introverted and sort of introspective meditations on what it means to be a human and and even things like Under the Dome by King was more about village life and paranoia and and all of those things uh, is there a genre that if if you could choose a like so Stephen King's done sort of thriller and horror is there a genre that you'd go into a second genre would it be horror I don't think it would be actually I think I love reading horror but I don't I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd scare myself too much to write it um I mean again never say never and I think that um, I think genre is a really interesting thing anyway, because I think we tend to think about genres as being slightly kind of closed boxes. But I think then you get writers like Stephen King who prove that they don't have to be and that you can write 
you can combine elements of different genres. And I do think that there is an element in thrillers at the moment that they've either gone very domestic or they are moving further toward or back towards horror. Um, so yeah, who, who knows? Again, I found that sounds quite enigmatic, um, but yeah, more just a, um, I don't know. And I, I think, I think quite often um, with writing, you're writing things that reflect where you are at a certain time. So certainly with her perfect twin, um, writing something like that made sense because of the um the fact that we were in a pandemic and we were in these kind of lockdown restrictions it echoed that into the novel um whereas i think if we hadn't had the pandemic i wouldn't have necessarily written something like her perfect twin or in the same way as i wrote her perfect twin if that makes sense so i think quite often the work that you produce reflects elements of, of how your life is at, at that time anyway so who knows I think then that is a good point to move on to your penultimate choice it is so my penultimate choice is a reflection of a genre that I absolutely love um, which is post-apocalyptic um, novels so I've always loved post-apocalyptic and dystopian but more on that um I suppose kind of end of the world type end of the spectrum um and it's just always fascinated me um and I think because it is gen generally those kind of post-apocalyptic novels reflect the kind of current and what's happening today but they also put people into just an impossibly difficult scenario and that's just always absolutely fascinated me. Um, and the one I've picked is actually a very, very recent book, um, which was published last year called Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. And I love this book and I talk about this book a lot. And in fact, this was um, my secret Santa for Bert's books this year. Um, and what I absolutely loved about this book um, was it follows a woman who is the only surviving person after a horrendous pandemic that basically just wipes out the entire um, human population. And she's the only one left, but she is normal. She's your kind of average everyday person. She doesn't have a whole load of specialist skills to survive because quite often post-apocalyptic novels kind of talk a lot about survival and, and how you would survive. And generally your protagonist is someone who has some special knowledge that helps them survive in that scenario. Um, she doesn't, she's just lucky or unlucky, I think personally, um, to be immune to this virus. So everyone else dies and she doesn't. And then the novel, basically that's where it picks up and, and follows her over a period of time as she essentially tries to come to terms with the end of everything, but also how she might survive and kind of carve out a new life when there is nothing left and it's just it just fascinated me the whole concept of it and and Beth writes it um just beautifully and it's it's yeah I just love this book <laughs> it's an interesting one because it's it was written, I mean, Bethany's been on the podcast before and she's talked about uh, the, the process of writing this. 
and it wasn't it was already being written by the point that we had the pandemic and he was writing about a pandemic but particularly specifically post-pandemic um and it was updated and he put in references to uh to covid but kind of left them fairly vague obviously we didn't know at the time what exactly was going to happen but it, it helped make it a bit more real uh what I thought when I was reading it because I was like well I can see this and I can see how it evolves did you find that as well as a reader and particularly as a person who reads a lot of sort of post-apocalyptic did it feel more real Absolutely, it did. And I think um, I think to, to read uh, pandemic fiction in a pandemic is it's a, it is a slightly bizarre um, situation, but there are also I think it does make it more real and it makes it more terrifying and it makes you realise it could happen. And I think because some of the things that we saw, particularly during COVID, where you know, we always, um, there's always been that saying of, um, oh, I'd avoid it like the plague. And actually what we've seen during COVID is actually most people don't avoid it. That <laughs> um, actually some of the things that then you read generally in, in pandemic books about how things do spread and they do spread so quickly and, and how people don't protect themselves or they make stupid decisions. And so things do, you know, escalate much more than they, they ever might do. Um, I think seeing how easily some of these pandemics could start and spread makes pandemic fiction much more visceral um, when you're reading it. And I think there is an element of reading it in that pandemic did make it feel a lot, a lot more real. Um, and I, I remember sitting down to, to start reading this and read it in a, a single sitting, which is very rare for me. I don't generally read a whole book just in one go but I just couldn't stop reading this. And I think had I um, maybe having read it at a different time, it wouldn't have had quite that impact, but it really did. Um, and yeah, it just, and those observances of what people did in the very early days of it. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, uh, it just blew my, my little mind. Definitely one of those books that A, is a, is a page turner, but for me, I think it's really, it's really going to stay with me. I can't now see a seagull in the wild and not think about this book. Yes, every time. Um, so I live not far from Brighton. So every time I'm in Brighton and I see the seagulls, I'm like, mm, just stay away yeah. from them. <laughs> yeah, we, we won't say much, but basically in, in the lockdown, uh, when all the people were inside dying, something took over had to something had to take over the world something had to become the dominant species and it seems to have been the seagulls <laughs> which I mean you know having spent time in Brighton and seeing how a vicious they are but also they are incredible survivors um I can imagine that actually you know uh, as the world emerges from from a kind of that level of catastrophe they probably would do quite well uh Bethany actually released this one during lockdown and I know a lot of authors sort of it was such a strange time because people weren't sure if their books were going to be read if they were 
go if anybody was going to be able to buy them in any places because all the shops were shut and um I wondered if, as a debut author, you have received any advice from your publishers or any any sort of guidance as to what to expect? Because I guess once the publication date was announced, they didn't know whether there'd be a lockdown again or, or not. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an odd thing, I think, to release a book anyway but particularly in a pandemic and I, and I really did feel for for some of the day de- particularly debuts last year when things were so locked down and when shops weren't open um and yeah just not you know not being able to go and see your book in a shop and you know you've spent for for most writers you spent years if not decades leading up to this moment and then you can't do anything with it and I know and I remember um watching Bethany mock up bookshops with her kids at home and various things on social media which was fantastic um but yeah I am I am glad that we are not in a lockdown obviously for many reasons including publishing um but I think I think there has been a shift over the last um couple of years away from the traditional, um, you know, go and see your book in a shop and maybe go and sign some books in a shop. I think there has been a move to do things that are more remote based. So doing more podcasts, um, doing more things on social media, um, which actually for me has been brilliant uh, because I just, I feel like I've met so many more people that I wouldn't have otherwise met and I say met in a kind of, you know, it might be through a screen, but you're still interacting with people. Um, and actually just, yeah, using social media was was something that I talked about with my agent and my editor at the beginning. Um, and so I've gone from not even having a Twitter account to I spend half my life on social media and I really like it. And it's actually been a fantastic way to meet other people in the book community and the writing community um, we've now got a, a debut group for this year together, and I think we are about 90 of us so far wow. um, who are all publishing first novels this year as well. So there's a huge um, community out there, which has been absolutely just brilliant to be part of and to meet loads of other people who are in the same boat. So, yeah, and I suppose in a way, it's probably opened more doors than would have been open otherwise if that makes any sense different opportunities definitely yeah and and an opportunity to to do things um that you possibly yet wouldn't have otherwise done or I think there's been much more of a lean towards doing things remotely as well which opens access for a, a ton of people and means that you can talk to people you otherwise maybe wouldn't have done um so yeah I think that in some ways it's made a positive shift and I think it's made it a lot easier for um for people to to get together in a way that is is different but is still great and you know we all love books so it's all good that's a really good opportunity though to for us to plug uh, the reading party because uh, you're doing that aren't you uh, with um William Shaw and yes he started that during lockdown as a way of sort of compensating for sudden la- sudden lack of events. But what we found was 
that we were getting people signing up who couldn't go to events in real life anyway. And it's just actually so nice to get uh, the people who can't get out or live millions of miles away from where all the events are happening to be able to take part in them. Yeah, so I've um, I've done a like a lot of the reading parties over the last year and and I originally signed up for the first one because yeah I couldn't get out to to do live events because obviously we were we were in lockdown I think for the first one that I did um and it's just been a fantastic way to to meet other people who love books and have a you know spend an hour reading with the author as well which is always um fantastic uh to to hear directly from um, from authors and I think something that otherwise you don't get to do that often unless you live in central London and you can go to to big events um, all the time I think for most of us it is difficult whether that's um, because of location or because <clears throat> you can't just you know nip out for a day to go to an event or um, you know financially it, it's closed off to you um, or you know, for a myriad of different reasons and actually things like having the reading party are just a fantastic opportunity to to get people together um, and have a bit of fun and I'm yeah really looking forward to doing that and yeah and hearing other people read my book will be brilliant um, yeah really really excited about Having said all of that about social media and the the wonders of digital, uh, do you have plans to rush out and take a picture of yourself next to a book in a bookshop? <laughs> yeah, so that is something that will definitely uh, happen, maybe not on publication date itself, but certainly um, in that first week, I will hunt down a copy and go and stand and point at it, kind of grinning like a, yes, grinning. <laughs> <laughs> what's your final choice so my final choice is another relatively modern book uh which is called my lovely wife by samantha downing um and this is a book that i read a couple of years ago um and it's a psychological thriller and basically it's about a married couple who spice up their marriage by basically becoming serial killers <laughs> um and it's it's dark but it's funny in places and it's it's such a fun story and it's one that I recommend to to a lot of my friends if they are in a bit of a reading slump or you know oh, I want to read something I'm not quite sure what I would say just read this book because it's just it's fun and it's fast and it's chilling but it's also it's yeah it's it's just brilliant and um the one of the other reasons I've chosen it is this book was what made me realize that you can write about a killer and still make the reader root for them and that was really really important when I was writing Her Perfect Twin because it only Her Perfect Twin only works if you do want her to get away with it um and this so my lovely wife became a bit of almost like a blueprint in a way of me going, right, I know that this can be done because um, Samantha did it um, and did it brilliantly. And it, I suppose it gave me the confidence to keep going with a book when I realised that actually you did have to want her to get away with it. Um, so, yeah, and 
uh, Samantha has subsequently published another two uh, novels as well, um, both psychological thrillers, um, and is definitely one of those authors who's kind of on my auto buy list. I will I will read anything that she writes um, and love it. And I was absolutely uh, mind blown when she read her perfect twin and gave me a quote for the front cover as well. So. Um, yeah, just I just love this book and uh, go and read it. If you like psychological thrillers, it's brilliant. So, yeah. So, having said that about trying trying to make uh, Megan a sympathetic character, one that you want to root for, but ultimately she is the killer in her own story. Did you find did you find that difficult to? Were there times when you thought actually this is veering off into uh, you just don't care about her anymore. <laughs> so the the interesting thing with this is I only realised actually that you, that what I was asking the reader to do was to want her to get away with murder. I didn't really realise that that was potentially a problem. I think I was about 30,000 words in um, and I'd just been enjoying writing it and um, she came... So she came via this short story, but she had such a strong voice in my head that she was really quite easy to write. And yeah, I got to, and I suddenly got to a point and I suddenly thought, oh, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. And that, yeah, that realization that, oh, she, you do have to root for her. Um, but I think I'd, I'd got to a point, I'd got so far on in writing it that I was going to carry on anyway. And then I gave it to my, mum who's my alpha reader so she it reads everything that I write first before anyone else ever sees it um and I didn't tell her um the kind of big question of do you root for her um but she absolutely did so I was kind of and then I gave it to another couple of early readers as well before I um did the final edits and sent it to agents um and everyone and no one ever questioned the fact that you want her to get away with it so I think it it did work um but there were a few things that I did tweak um to make her because there were a couple of times where she was maybe a little bit not as nice in the original <laughs> draft and I kind of scaled her back a little bit and said actually although I'm a huge fan of this unlikable protagonist or you know people who are massively flawed as protagonists and I really like that as a reader it didn't work for her so she had to be someone that actually you did like and you did want to get away with it. and also just someone who felt quite normal and quite um obviously it's a slightly uh, fantastical situation because most of us aren't identical twins and we can't get away with murder by covering up in that way but that um, that actions or the events that lead up to her killing her sister, I think that's quite relatable. And that um, that idea of because she doesn't she doesn't go to confront her sister with the intent to kill her. Um, it's more of a oh no look what I've done type moment. Um, and I think particularly we've all now lived through essentially two years of a pandemic living in close quarters quite often with people and not having any space and I 
I'm probably not alone in having at some point muttered under my breath, if you do that one more time, I will kill you. <laughs> um, and I think we've all done that. And I think maybe we are now all a little bit um, more uh, sympathetic to someone who is who you know driven to the edge and then does finally snap and does something that they regret, but obviously she can't take it back. So she does have to do something um, about the situation. So. It's it's an interesting one because uh, I I read it and I was I think roller coaster gets used on a lot of books but I think certainly in this one it is a, a bit of a roller coaster ride because there is a point well there's a couple of points but there's one specific point where it looks like she's not going to get away with it and at that point I just suddenly realised that I did want her to get away with it and I hadn't really clocked that up until that moment. And I was just sort of going along for the ride. And then suddenly I was invested and I was like, oh no, it's all going to go wrong for her. Well, I think, I think part of that is because I hadn't really thought about the morality of asking you to want to, her to get away with it as I was writing it. So I think because that was just never in the back of my mind, um, I, I think maybe that's, that's how it reads as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right, I'm now going to do my evil interviewer question and say, if there was just one of these books that I made you pick as the most important one to you, which one would you pick? Oh, that's such a difficult question. I think it, it depends on what you what you think about in terms of importance. Um, I think yeah, if you were asking me which one book would I take to a desert island, it would have to be Outlander because I could, you know, A, it's it's a long book. And I could, <laughs> but also I could read that many times over, I think. Um, but I think if it was the one that was most important in terms of its influence, I think it has to be Angela Carter, just because that was almost a gateway into a whole another genre um, and also probably a bit of a gateway into into reading slightly more literary fiction as well. So I'm quite conscious that um, apart from the Angela Carter, all my choices are quite genre. There's very little literary fiction in there, um, which I think just reflects generally on what I enjoy. But I do like the I do like literary fiction. Um, and that was the gateway into that as being something else to read. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna have to say The Bloody Chamber. You've already touched on uh, that you're writing a young adult novel. Uh, is there anything else in the pipeline that you can tell us about? So I have written a second adult. Um, so I had a, a two book contract with Hodder Studios. So I have written the second one. Uh, that's currently with my editor at the moment um, to start that process of, of then you know, polishing it up and getting it ready to come out. And that will hopefully come out next January, so about a year from now. Um, and that is similar in some ways. Uh, it has a very similar kind of narrative style. So it's that uh, really close first person and has a few different uh, narrators over the course of the story. Um, but this one focuses on two women who both receive the same anonymous note that is essentially a warning that their husbands are going to try and kill them. 
and then it follows that kind of fallout of of that realization that their domestic situations are maybe not quite what they seem and is that set in lockdown as well no not really no um it's it's contemporary it makes the odd reference to the fact that there was a pandemic um but is set kind of now as we hopefully fingers crossed and I really hope I'm not jinxing things as we start to move out of that and back to hopefully what will um what will become normal again she says and, hopefully. and can you tell us a little bit of what your YA novel is about so my YA novel is um again it's a thriller um and I I love young adult thrillers I think I said that earlier um Again, it's it's school based. Uh, it's not boarding school, although I I did I did question whether or not it should be, but I decided not to. Um, but it follows a um, group of students in a school. Um, I'm going to have to not actually say very much more, <laughs> actually. Um, but it is it involves a website, and uh, it's got a little bit of a feminist angle to it and um yeah I'm really really excited about it and I'm really hoping that that will um find a home with a publisher soon so well fingers crossed they, they both sound really interesting so I can't wait to uh to get my hands on them and have a, a little sneaky read uh Sarah Bonner thank you very much for joining me thank you very much for having me my guest this week was Sarah Bonner and her book, Her Perfect Twin, is available to order now at birthbooks.co.uk. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their shelf life.